Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in the UK, a centre for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, go to centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented in September 2019 as part of a conference on Anglican-Catholic relations marking the 450th anniversary of the 1569 Northern Uprising. The paper is by the Reverend Professor Oliver O'Donovan. It is entitled Moral Disagreement in Anglican-Catholic Relations and it is followed by a response by Dr. Julie Clegg. This lecture will set out, hopefully, to discuss the question whether there are or are not systemic moral disagreements between Anglicans and Roman Catholics. It will then lose its way. <laughs> and instead of returning a clear answer to a clear question, it will do, as moral theology is proverbially reputed to do, and make the question so complicated and difficult that it will end up looking for another question to answer. And what that question will be, uh, I can't at the moment tell you because I'm not quite sure. Uh, you must listen to this lecture in the spirit that you might watch a small man taking a very large dog for a walk. The dog determines the direction and the man barks. In 1982, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, responding to the final report of Archic I, noted that moral teaching should be given an important place among remaining points which constitute an obstacle to unity. And to the best of my knowledge, this was the first official suggestion that moral teaching did constitute an obstacle to unity. The 1966 Common Declaration of Paul VI and Archbishop Ramsey, from which the dialogue originated, had identified not only theological matters, but also matters of practical difficulty felt on either side. But these were understood to be problems of conflicting church discipline, on such matters as admission to communion and mixed marriage, not differences in what the two churches taught their faithful about living the Christian life. Yet, in 1982, the implication that they were morally divided passed as conventional wisdom virtually without comment. This was not as one might suspect at this distance, a CDF idiosyncrasy. Indeed, CDF made the suggestion because it was eagerly suggested and requested from um, national dialogues, national ARC dialogues. And I know that because I know it was requested um, by the Canadian ARC dialogue on which I happen to serve. To understand why this perception quite suddenly came to the fore, 
we need to keep in mind two background features of what life was like in the early 1980s. Uh, ancient history for some of us, but all too recent for others. First of all, there was the severe shock suffered by all the Western churches at the universal and largely spontaneous abandonment by Western nations of legal restraints on abortion. This was a profoundly new and disturbing development. I think more so than any similar one that has occurred since. For it was not just one more erosion of the fading Christian culture of Europe and America, like Sunday trading or the freedom of religious schools to appoint uh, sympathetic staff. But it was a rejection of what had generally been assumed to be a solid, natural law intuition of reverence for human life that would command the agreement of all people of goodwill. Among the churches, and especially within the Protestant churches, it proved divisive in the highest degree. Yet the difficulty was at the time, and I think still is looking back, to know just what this divisiveness was over. Very few Christians at the time had any enthusiasm for the expanding social attraction of abortion as a contraceptive practice. They disagreed bitterly on whether the unborn child was in the strict sense, whatever the strict sense might be, a person. They disagreed on exactly what grounds, if any, might, be just, might justify the termination of a pregnancy. But their disagreements always placed them far in the wake of what the changing law had already come to make normal. The real nub of the inter-Christian division, I think, over this lay in the degree to which older culture-affirmative attitudes could survive against newer cultural critical ones. This was supremely the war of the optimists and the pessimists, of those who thought there was a best to be made of the new situation and were determined to make it, and those who saw themselves brought to a status confessionis by it. And though no Christian body could naturally claim a monopoly of optimists or pessimists, the churches did begin to show a clear tendency, natural enough in communities suddenly at sixes and sevens with themselves, to redefine themselves around the new issue. And this produced two new forces towards separation. First, as each community projected the disturbance it experienced onto the other community. Secondly, as in pursuit of redefinition, old issues were brought back into play as analogies. So it came about, for instance, that contraception and abortion, two very different questions, came to some minds to seem virtually indistinguishable. The second background feature of that period was an internal argument that had become very sharp within Catholic moral theology, uh, a body of teaching and thinking to which the Anglican world has had no real equivalent at all. 
The Vatican Council had asked for special care to be given to the development of moral theology, the teaching of which was to be more nourished on the doctrine of Holy Scripture and display the lofty calling of believers in Christ and their obligation to bear fruit in love for the light of the world. Now, within and beyond the formal boundaries of moral theology itself, this appeal was heard and responded to with a ready will. And it was met in a variety of ways. Catholic ethics, traditionally rather a single-track science, began to take on all kinds of new forms, as New Testament hermeneutics, for example, or as ecclesiology or as moral philosophy, Kantian, phenomenological, or analytic. Interest in Aquinas' ethics suddenly enjoyed an ecumenically-based revival under the new banner of virtue ethics. Some Catholic ethics, including much that was thought of and thought of itself as liberal, sought to renew the idea of natural law, other Catholic ethics, including much that was thought of as conservative, sought to relegate natural law to the fringes. Uh, Balthazar was a striking example of this in his um, epoch-making nine theses on Christian ethics. If this efflorescence of new approaches had one element in common, it was the hope of disentangling moral discussion from the quasi-legal framework which had marked the traditional approach, a late survival of the medieval and Renaissance concept of law as an all-embracing form of the will of God. But barely had the summons been sounded and the response begun to take off when the old style made a sudden prominent reappearance in Pope Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae. It's hard to overstate the level of anxiety that this produced in Catholic moral theology. On what should have been, and under the surface continued to be, a wide-ranging and rather diverse exploration of new resources for Christian moral thought, there was superimposed a binary confrontation of loyalism and opposition. And opposition coalesced around the view that when it came to discerning Christian moral judgments appropriate to the age, the church's highest teaching office had a rather different function and a less decisive function than it did in defining doctrine. Moral reason and theoretical reason were not the same thing, it was argued. The kind of propositional agreement that underpinned doctrinal unity was not to be looked for in moral matters. It was a measure of the difficulty of the times that, this, that it was difficult to see behind the polarization how very wide a range of interpretations that that thesis itself was susceptible of. While no one, I believe, wanted to question the claim that a unified Christian church must have a consistent and recognisable moral witness. The question was how you define that moral witness. And some Catholics, following Kantian lines of thought, 
held that it could not consist in any distinctive moral propositions at all, only a more profound and energizing commitment to them. The church had no teaching function in morality, except perhaps with children, but its exhortatory function was all the more important. Now that proposition, striking in its implications for the teaching office, tended to distract attention from the many other more moderate and more accommodating ways of sketching the difference between doctrinal and moral unity. If primary moral propositions are not as such susceptible of disagreement, or if moral propositions derive from doctrinal propositions, then disagreements on moral matters may indeed arise and may be required teaching, but the priority for unity must still lie with doctrine. And the points at issue must be viewed as secondary and derivative to be handled contextually uh, um, as they arise and in the way they arise. Inconclusive and frustrating as these debates were at the time, they did bring to the surface a range of questions of undoubted importance, with necessary implications also for ecumenical moral agreement. In 1984, the second archic was charged, among other things, with reporting on moral disagreements. And 10 years later, it did so in a short document called Life in Christ. Its approach was broad brush. It argued that though disagreements in certain areas of practical and pastoral judgment had arisen, they did not stand comparison with the fundamental community of moral outlook and conviction that the disciples of Christ shared within the church. It sought to discourage the exaggeration of differences which had strong historical and situational components and wrote of disproportionate emphasis that had come to be laid on some disagreements, blurring the common Christian commitment, and these could provoke a sense of alienation. Since at the time of its publication, I went public uh, with my disappointment at that document in the pages of the tablet, as it happens. I think they thought I was a a good recruit to the wasp's nest just at the time. Uh, I'm glad to take the opportunity now to acknowledge that it displayed quite a degree of common sense. It was probably as positive and helpful a contribution as could be made by a body on which only a few members had specialist experience in ethics. I was frustrated by it because I thought that a critical opportunity had been missed. Uh, an opportunity to address the supposed disagreements in specific detail. The trend to self-redefinition was alarming and fast. Large claims about disagreement were being put into circulation. A diocesan bishop of the Church of England published a popular book wholly devoted to the moral disagreements between Canterbury and Rome called So Near and Yet So Far. 
In it, he identified eight moral matters on which Lambeth and Rome were substantially supposed to be disagreed. Of these, several were matters on which the Anglican churches had in fact said nothing whatsoever and thought it not worth saying anything about them, I think. There were others on which it was not at all clear that what Anglican churches had said and what Romans said were not broadly along parallel lines, even if you could notice uh, the detailed dis dis um, distinctions. So there was a tendency to make a very great deal out of comparatively little. And this was what drove me to hope, along with one or two very estimable Catholic moral theologians, uh, that a careful comparative account of claims actually made on detailed issues could demonstrate a much closer proximity than was generally assumed and could put those galloping disagreements back in their box. That life in Christ had a rather muted impact, as Peter reminded us this morning, was due, I think, less to its own strengths and weaknesses, let alone any criticisms that I made, than to the timing of its appearance. It was preempted by a few months with the publication of John Paul II's encyclical on moral questions, Veritatis Splendor. And this was a document as clearly ready to grasp nettles as life in Christ had been determined to avoid grasping them. Though in no way conceived as an ecumenical document, the encyclical's publication proved to be an event of great ecumenical interest, at least in the English-speaking world. It found a warm reception among a number of Protestant ethicists, including many Anglicans, while the reaction among Catholic moral theologians was generally cool, and sometimes resembled that of a dog whose tail has been trodden on. Especially memorable uh, is, was the complaint of the very distinguished redemptorist Father Bernard Herring that a reading of the text had brought about long-lasting seizures of the brain which had threatened to remove him from the church on earth to the church in heaven. One thing became clear from this at any rate. The popular assumption of a persisting gulf between an absolutist, Thomist, scholastic, Catholic moral theology on the one hand and a relativist, neo-Kantian, Protestant ethics on the other no longer corresponded to reality at all. To understand the reaction of the Catholic uh, moral theologians, one need only recall the already very troubled state in which the document found them. It was perfectly understandable that they should not welcome a second major papal intervention into their concerns, even one so evidently different in style, approach and aim. Protestants, quite innocent of the politics and inclined to read the Pope as who an up-and-coming colleague rather than as an authority, appreciated especially those aspects of John Paul's outlook which 
he had derived from his early studies in Max Scheler, a figure whose strong Augustinianism and powerful rejection of Kantian formalism chimed perfectly with the mood of Protestant ethics just at that time. And since what had concerned the Pope in this document was not the currently presenting moral issues that might very well have elicited the usual uh, disagreements, but larger and more theoretical contentions about the nature of freedom and conscience, the Protestants found in Veritatis Splendor a useful contribution to discussions they were already engaged in. Catholic and Protestant readers sometimes seem to approach that document from opposite ends. The wise serpents in the Catholic Church looking first for the point at which the shoe would pinch, deeply buried in the final pages of the document, the innocent doves of the Protestant readers beginning at the beginning and being charmed by the Pope's evangelical determination to put things first things first, especially in framing morality within a narrative of salvation. Twenty-five years later, that document and its author are still controversial, I think, sometimes for reasons that have little to do with Pope John Paul's thought. In the long twilight of his papacy, he came to seem a very conservative figure. But in the first 15 years, he had been as determined to reconfigure the way the church presented its moral teaching as to preserve its substance. Already by 1993, he had reconciled Catholic tradition to gradualism, had found an accommodation with some aspirations of Latin American liberation theology, and in the Catholic Catechism, had produced a summary of biblically founded Christian moral teaching, which is obviously at least cut from the same cloth as any comparable Protestant document might be. So among the various approaches to giving flesh and blood to the Council's call for the renewal of moral theology, John Paul's was by no means, in my mind, the least adventurous. But this recent history has to be said uh, against the background of, of a longer Protestant and Catholic difference. And here there is one striking fact that I want to begin from. I call it a fact, though it may be, of course, uh, a matter of interpretation of facts, such facts tend to be, but I still put it forward with some confidence. No moral disagreement between Anglicans and Roman Catholics that prevailed in the 20th century went back to the Reformation era. Whatever the longer term implications of the doctrinal differences between the communions then, there was no immediate corollary and play out in their moral thinking and moral opposition. Of course, during and after the Reformation, Anglicans and Catholics constantly accused each other of a wide range of moral obliquities. But these charges tended to be laid against the background of a moral law that was supposed to be very well understood on both sides. The era of Reformation was, in its moral thinking, predominantly a voluntarist era. 
when men did wrong because their hearts were evil, not because they were mistaken, not because they profoundly disagreed. It is true, of course, that moral faults were traced back to doctrinal error. The Protestant view of divine grace as interpreted by Catholics, the Catholic view of the papal powers as interpreted by Protestants, seemed sufficient explanation for the sadly demoralized state in which each found the other to live. Yet, those explanations only explained why the moral law was not observed. The idea of a disagreement about morality lay conceptually more or less out of reach, I think, in the 16th century. There is, however, one especially interesting case which just deserves noting in passing. 16th century Protestants, abandoning the understanding of marriage as a sacrament, understood the indissolubility of marriage as a requirement of evangelical or sometimes even of natural law. Therefore, subject to exception on grounds that they believed to have been indicated by Christ and St. Paul. Catholics, following Augustine's sacramental logic discussing marriage, saw the indissolubility of Christian marriage as an ontological reality, from which arose different practices over the termination of marriage. But curiously, given its original entanglement with the problem of King Henry's divorces, the English church did not follow the general Protestant line. It had planned to do so uh, in the projected but interrupted canon law reforms of Edward VI's reign. But by the reign of James I, when canon law was finally settled, the appetite for this change had gone, and the English church was content with the Augustinian doctrine until the second half of the 19th century, when new currents in the wider Anglican communion made the question controversial again. Two distinct impulses in the 17th century acted as midwives for this idea of a moral disagreement. One was the increasing encounter with the colonial of the colonial enterprise of, between Western and non-Christian cultures. The other was the popularization in grammar schools of the late Renaissance classical education, which made thinking lay people aware of the variety of moral doctrine in pre-Christian antiquity and suggested that perhaps in their own day too, one might be an Epicurean or a Stoke. Yet that discovery took some time to permeate the culture. And what strikes us most about the moral discourse sustained in the 17th century, which was in some respects a high watermark for moral theology, both in Protestant and in the Catholic world, is how common to Catholic and Protestant worlds were the idioms of what came to be called casuistry, detailed analyses of dilemmas of conscience understood as an aspect of the pastoral task of the ordained minister. Later, something of a favorite hate object for Protestant polemicists, the casuistic idiom was universal 
during the century of Odium Theologicum. And it met with serious criticism only, so far as I know, only from a Catholic thinker, uh, the great Jansenist uh, Blaise Pascal. From the beginnings of the 18th century, however, prevailing styles of moral inquiry diverged quite sharply. The Protestant world, and in this the Anglican world belonged to it, adopted new styles of moral thinking and writing, at one level literary, at another philosophical, led largely by lay intellectuals. The role of the church as the primary source of moral instruction fell into the background, except insofar as the universities could still in a very attenuated way be seen as extending the church. Moral philosophy, a self-centered, a self-contained discipline with no theological obligations, became the new ideal. The Catholic moral theology sustained itself in the face of this European and really American trend too, was largely due to the sacrament of penance and the structural role of moral theology in its support. And from that point on, despite attempts subsequently to reintegrate ethics into Protestant theology, especially associated with the Reformed and with the name of Schleiermacher, the difference of styles remained very marked. Protestant ethics attending by preference to philosophical and theological foundations, uh, Catholic ethics continuing to explore detailed perplexities of conduct. Now, one conclusion we may draw from these parallel histories of Western Christian moral thought is that a great deal could present itself as moral disagreement, which was, in fact, a shadow cast by ecclesiological and social assumptions. The Reformation did not disagree about morality, but certainly disagreed about ecclesiology, and therefore also about political theology. Regnant models of social and educational organization diverged considerably during the early 18th century. Protestants and Anglicans becoming more committed to a model of Christian secularity, parliaments, universities, schools, all free of clerical control, giving voice, it was thought sometimes plausibly, to informed lay Christian understanding. Not, I think, until the mid-19th century did the anxiety that a lay Christian culture constructed in this way might be in peril from the breakdown of Christendom itself begin to impact significantly on Protestant thinkers. The Catholic world, meanwhile, and especially in Southern Europe, which had lived with greater ecclesiastical involvement in cultural institutions on the one hand and felt the clash with anti-Christian enlightenment much earlier and much more forcibly than the Protestant world um, 
clearly got to that point sooner. But again, the path to separate social developments was neither consistent nor final. Protestant Catholic social assumptions did not run in straight lines after 1564. They evolved contextually from one period to the next, and since their history was for much of the time on a single continent, they evolved in conscious mutual reaction and imitation. When the early Protestant polemicists fulminated over the morality of a church that maintained licensed brothels in the Holy City, they were certainly not defending any kind of secularity. They were championing an idealist Christian social revolution which had no room for the secular logic of the papal states. As Protestantism became more identified with the secular, the complaint became reversed. The Catholic idea of order was a repressive clerical idealism. On the Catholic side, there are similar paradoxes. The political theology of the Catholic monarchies, and particularly of pre-revolution France, had astonishingly Erastian features when compared with the Catholic social theory of the post-revolutionary era. And what we should conclude from these paradoxes is not that such reflections and criticisms as they generated were merely opportunistic and self-deceived, but that they were contextually determined moments in the operation of a set of wider convictions which to a greater extent were held in common and that each party accordingly proved capable of learning from the experience of the other. The history alone is enough to suggest that true moral agreement and disagreement does not lie on the surface. Like wisdom, they have to be searched for. But they are much more difficult to trace than doctrinal agreements. Doctrinal agreements, when reached, are located in propositions, fairly securely, not exhaustively, but satisfactorily. But propositions, indispensable as they are for moral understanding, will not pin down the true character of Christian moral harmony. And that, I think, is the underlying force of the point that was made in different ways by many Catholic moralists in the 70s and 80s. Moral reason and theoretical reason function differently and do not allow precisely analogous ways of establishing agreements. The best way to conceive the difference, I think, is to see practical reason as operating on two planes and not one. If we want to establish a true account of any matter of fact, however complex it may be, we range its elements alongside one another while respecting their internal relations of causality and implication, and we try to form a comprehensive view of some kind. But in practical reasoning, such a view is not the goal. The goal is to transfer our view of reality, however complete or incomplete it may be, 
onto the plane of action. And so to fashion a course of conduct that coheres with it. Where theoretical reason gazes over land and sea, practical reason must direct our steps from the quay onto the boat. It involves the correlation of the one plane of vision with the other. On each plane, judgments have to be made, judgments of reflection, judgments of deliberation. But the two types of judgment have to be held together coherently. And the correlation of planes is not a deductive process, beginning from universal principles, proceeding to derive concrete actions from them. It is an inductive process, lining up the nubbly concrete particulars alongside the fruitful but not wholly determinate universal categorism. The universal sheds light on the particular the particular gives body to the universal. There is a constant movement of reason between the two poles, and each of them must be grasped in relation to the other. So, to form a judgment on a community's moral thinking, then, whether it's one's own community or another, is not simply to judge the adequacy of what they have said or understood about moral truths. It is also to judge the way in which that understanding is rendered in decision and action. Sometimes we allow ourselves to suppose that mutual approval at the level of principle is sufficient. Discrepancies of behaviour can be treated comparatively lightly as accidents that befall generally sound principles. There's some measure of truth in this, a concrete act that gives offence has been subject, as every act is, to all kinds of historical contingencies. When we put a foot wrong, there are a hundred wrong places to put it. We can misinterpret circumstances. We can misunderstand others' intentions. We can misjudge the effects of our actions. We can have a mistaken sense of responsibility. We can even, or so it has been thought since Aristotle, go wrong for no other reason than that we are weak. At all events, there are failures of wisdom, charity, courage and prudence that do not amount to failures of moral principle or even of moral character or purpose. Such a view naturally commends itself in ecumenical contexts. It makes moral agreement seem attainable on one plane, and that is the plane on which the humanist is used to working, the plane of propositions. Yet, we should not make the mistake of confusing a true harmony of moral principle, character and purpose, which may on occasion be hidden behind contingent discrepancies of action, with the simple formulations of principle that we can decide that we agree on. Moral formulations of this kind are underdetermined. They require interpretation in the concrete activities of life before their full bearing can be revealed. To be sure, they're an essential conceptual framework for the pursuit of moral agreement, but it is possible for an agreement to go no further than concepts and to fall short 
of real moral harmony. Now, not only acts give offence, ideas give offence too. In a strongly discursive culture like our own, where for every one thing we do, we express a hundred opinions at least, it's much more likely that offence will be given by something thought or said than by something done. Throughout the 19th century, it could seem that a great deal of disagreement at the level of moral ideas could coexist with perfectly harmonious social habits and practices and a high measure of agreement on concrete judgments. Differing theories of ethics competed with one another to show that they could justify precisely the same concrete moral conclusions as all the other ones did. Differences at the level of ideas thus seemed comparatively innocuous. The experience of the 20th century banished that assumption quite quickly. And such offensive ideas may equally well disturb those who believe that they enjoy agreement on fundamental principles. We must not live with the comfortable illusion that profound moral disagreement cannot arise just because of the logic of things, but will always be secondary and of lesser importance. Because principles are interpreted not only by how they're acted on, but by how they're thought about. And agreement on principles is only as secure as the infrastructure of common thinking that supports it. It's a common enough experience, isn't it, that something that looks like a clear agreement is suddenly put back in controversy by a well-meant attempt to explain it. Uh, there's a very interesting attempt, the example of this, in the text of Life, of Life in Christ itself, where the two sides, having laid out the evangelical moral convictions on which they know they are agreed, then admit to some continuing disagreement as to the mode in which these propositions are held, whether they are absolute or relative. Now, it's an obvious question to ask how disagreement on that does not actually subvert the agreements they have just laid claim to. After all, there are beliefs which, to believe relatively, means to disbelieve, since they are either categorically true or are not true at all. I can believe that democracy is a good arrangement for a political community relatively. But that love is the supreme command on which hang all the commands of the law is not something I can believe in that way. The charitable reader of life in Christ will, of course, be able to rescue the agreement claimed there by forming clearer and less, um, perhaps less fundamental statement of that remaining disagreement. But that implies exploring and interpreting the various applications of those elusive terms of art, absolute and relative. And as it happens, the charitable reader, seeking to rescue the agreement of life in Christ, could find some help from Veritatis Splendor, which has a lot to say about what may and may not be regarded as absolute in ethics, with an emphasis on what may not 
be regarded as absolute in ethics. Beginning from the text, none is good but God alone, John Paul finds the absolutes of ethics exclusively in God and the sanctity of the human person. Still a faithful disciple of Shelah. The point to take from that is simply that securing agreement in principle requires the kind of discursive exploration of moral concepts in which that papal document engaged. This is not something that the moral harmony of the churches can subsist entirely without. Now, with moral disagreement, there is always a dynamic tendency for it to get worse. And that is because it presents itself phenomenologically as offence. And offence cannot simply be noted. It must be signalled at the very least with expressions of disapproval. And disapproval invites reciprocal disapproval and self-justification, which then generates the dynamic of separation as each side redefines itself and its thinking in justification of the position that it has just taken up. The only alternative to letting loose this dynamic of separation is to cultivate a discipline of questioning and explanation. A discipline which will ask for reasons, will be prepared to give reasons, will be prepared to listen to reasons, and perhaps challenge those reasons, and at least pursue them. It is a discipline that requires the critic to come to terms with how an offending deed or thought looked from the point of view of the agent, and will require the offending agent to articulate explanations and answers that will satisfy the terms of the criticism. And there can be, in the end, I would maintain, no secure moral harmony in any community without some such discipline. So if we are to take account of the dynamic of offence and address it directly, we must be prepared to tackle the matters that give offence specifically as they arise. Personally, I'm sceptical at the programme that the programme of receptive ecumenism and exchange of gifts enormously valuable as that program must be, uh, addressed to a whole range of differences of practice, uh, can do more than sidestep these offensive issues of ethics. We must not, in other words, be prepared simply to ignore the word offence and wrap it up in the word difference or disagreement. Offence is offence. It has to be addressed as offence. No other way. What would such a more targeted approach involve institutionally? Well, first of all, I think it would involve 
the deep participation of the faithful laity. This for the obvious reason, that they have direct experience, which is directly relevant to issues of moral agreement. Living Christian discipleship is something they do. And the difficulties of which they can talk about are difficulties which anyone who thinks about it has to think about. And that's true in general terms, of general human experience. What it means in practice to resist the temptation to accumulate wealth in a society where economic motivation is viewed as the primary incentive is something, frankly, that the lay Christian is likely to know a great deal more of than any ordained people I have ever met. But it's equally true of specialist practices and callings. Bioethics, the ethics of defense, the ethics of education. These cannot be sensibly thought about in the church unless the voices of Christian physicians, soldiers, teachers are actually heard. For what they have to contribute is not just descriptive information of the practices of what goes on, but a witness to moral intuitions that have been formed in the heart of the practice itself, they can tell us where the conscientious problems really arise. Those intuitions are not the only ones that count. With every practice, there's also a view from outside, and the view from outside may sometimes see things that practitioners do not see. So I'm not recommending that medical ethics can only be done by doctors or anything like that. Specialist experience does not entitle professions to erect barriers against questions or challenges. But it cannot possibly be ignored. And least of all, when that experience is part of a life lived in faith within the church. If we're to avoid the moral bankruptcy of trying to answer moral questions with some kind of a sociological headcount, the style we Anglicans, I'm afraid, know all too well as the, by the strapline, well, many Anglicans think. If we can avoid the many Anglicans think approach, a theological contribution to moral discussion is also clearly essential whenever there are neuralgic points that have to be sorted out. On theologians, we depend for a sense of the coherence of form that relates the moral life of the church to its faith. The Catholic stream of Western Christianity has believed in the necessary implications that bind a well-formed faith with a well-lived life. And that involves making the moral tradition of the church, which is the continuity of the gospel in the life of the saints, available as a resource for contemporary deliberation. In many ways, that is a very much more difficult task than interpreting the dogmatic tradition of the church. Inevitably, contexts change hugely from age to age. Each generation faces a constellation of practical challenges that has never occurred in quite that form before. Interpretation of the moral tradition, avoiding on the one hand hagiographical narrative and on the other hand the stubborn refusal to learn from the past, requires a historical imagination of what particular deeds or thoughts 
formed in earlier generations, meant in that context. And the theologians have failed if in the end the churches can make nothing of them. And we depend on the theologians finally to encourage conceptual and dialectical clarity, safeguarding a proper philosophical integrity in discussion. One thing that the decades we have lived through ought to have taught us, I think, is that the greatest cause of moral extremism is inarticulacy and incoherence. On the governing bishops and councils of the church, we depend, finally, to make such a discourse continually possible, nurturing and structuring occasions for serious moral inquiry and serious moral cross-questioning at every level of the church. Where there is actual moral disagreement that threatens the life of the church from within, they also have the special task of bringing that conflict within the wider perspectives of the church's moral discourse, structuring the approaches to it, clarifying the grounds on which it may possibly be resolved, and building on such resolutions as are reached. The plea of the present Archbishop of Canterbury that the church should learn to practice good disagreement is surely an appropriately Episcopal contribution. But precisely in the pursuit of good disagreement, they also have the task of articulating and confirming agreements, which the church enjoys, in fact. Without a sense of agreement, good disagreement becomes impossible because it's unlimited, without parameters. But then, too, the church's agreements belong of right, not to the church alone, but to the world. And they need to be addressed to the world by those who speak to the world of the church's mind. In moral discourse, too, there is an apostolic and proclamatory role. Well, that little depiction of contributory stand, strands to engagement over moral issues is an ideal, but it's close enough to how we often conceive our responsibilities to be at least a possible normative ideal, a model by which we could measure ourselves. When I reflect on the experience of such engagements in my lifetime and ask, how that ideal has and has not been realized within the Anglican churches, I am forced to conclude that thoughtful lay Christians have wanted such discourse much more than they have had it. That church lord leaders, while their record has been distinctly patchy, have at their most clear-sighted understood precisely what was needed in such a discourse and tried to supply it. But that my own class, the theologians, have appeared largely unconscious of their responsibilities. So the summons of the Vatican Council to renew moral theology, heard a generation ago by numerous Catholic theologians who responded in all manner of ways, has, I think, still uh, to waken Anglican theologians from their slumber. To conclude... Learning good disagreement is actually the same as learning agreement. For learning to agree 
involves focusing on disagreements, achieving clarity about where precisely they lie, describing them with an exactitude as to do with this, but not necessarily with that. And that clarity resists the temptation to allow particular concrete moments of disagreement simply to become all-important as they break upon us, and so undiscussable. It also resists the opposite temptation to suppress disagreement by treating it as a priori unreal and impossible. And here again the question terminates in the apostolic mission to the world. If the churches could do no more than model mutual questioning and accounting for their moral thoughts and decisions, they could offer a very important service to a failing culture. There are times when the public ought conscientiously to change its mind about some issue. The gospel calls on the world to repent, and so from time to time it should. Conscientious change of mind requires conscientious discourse to reach it. The sudden seismic reversals of conviction that sweep through Western society without warning are not effective exercises of public conscience. They witness precisely to the lack of a discourse that might allow a reflective conscience to emerge. Spasmodic self-reinvention as a way of responding to moral challenge cannot generate any kind of freedom. Inarticulacy is always enslaving. It allows no defense against the pressures of moral fashion, which are the fruit of an underdeveloped conscience. The ministry of the church to such a civilization is surely to model in faithfulness to Christ what articulate and humane investigation of moral agreement and disagreement should look like. Thank you very much. Peter Sedgwick has argued that the upheaval in Catholic moral theology, Roman Catholic, I shall use that term as far as I can, that the upheaval in Roman Catholic moral theology since the 1960s has overshadowed ecumenical dialogue on ethics. I agree. Occic was established as a firestorm broke out in the Roman Catholic Church, which sucked oxygen away from what should have been a more extensive commitment to and engagement with the ecumenical imperative that Pope St. John XXIII had awakened in his church. The last 50 years have seen a rapid transformation in the nature of the discipline, which is still ongoing. By many measures, Roman Catholic moral theology, or Catholic theological ethics, as some prefer to call it, is flourishing. There's been a huge expansion in the range of subject matter of the discipline and division into many sub-disciplines, environmental, medical, sexual, feminist ethics, and so on, each requiring their own specific expertise. And this has been accompanied by the increasing secularization of the discipline as the study of theology has expanded beyond the seminary context and away from church control over curriculum content. The profile of moral theologians has changed and the numbers have grown. There are more people from the global south, more lay people, more women, and crucially, 
more people with valuable first-hand experience of many of the ethical issues under discussion on, for example, marriage or infertility, for instance. It's a hugely diverse enterprise, and through the diversity of its theologians, it's now a more representative of the world church. There's still a long way to go, but today Roman Catholic moral theology is better equipped to reflect the rich experience and cultural heritage of the Christian tradition. But the last 50 years have also been tumultuous for the moral theology in the Catholic Church. The ecclesiological event of the century, Vatican II, required moral theology to be reconfigured, but there was no clear template for how to accomplish this. And almost immediately after the Council, there followed a crisis throughout the Catholic Church with publication of Humanae Vitae, from which it has not fully recovered. There ensued a conservative phase of church leadership following the Council and attempts at a reform of the reform. The Vatican attempted to close down debate on contested issues such as contraception and homosexuality. For example, through the curtailing of debate at Synod of Bishops meetings, through the issuing of uncompromising statements on moral issues by John Paul II and the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, especially under Joseph Ratzinger, by making the teaching of Humanae Vitae a litmus test of orthodoxy for the appointment of bishops, and by clamping down on a large number of supposed dissident theologians through uh, things such as delation to Rome, notifications, silencing, and removal from Catholic teaching positions. Of course, many of these currents affected theological disciplines throughout the Catholic world. However, this collision of circumstances was particularly felt in Catholic moral theology, and shockwaves of these historical events continue to be felt and continue to be the object of study and evaluation. Given this wounded context, Catholics have been somewhat preoccupied with in-house matters, and formal ecumenical engagement has perhaps been less than it should have been. However, if moralists have been taken up with debates on issues such as magisterial authority and the limits of dissent, and many ecclesiological matters as well as moral matters, and have neglected their ecumenical responsibilities, nonetheless, informal ecumenical work and cooperation has taken place. Many of the ethical sub-disciplines are strongly ecumenical in outlook, as are the guilds of moral theologians and Christian ethicists. Many Catholic moral theologians now teach in an ecumenical and indeed interreligious or non-religious environment, and many are engaged in public life through links to NGOs, charities and other bodies in which they work alongside and together with Anglicans and other Christians and non-Christians. Archic's timing has not been great. In 1967, its establishment coincided with the aftermath of Vatican II and the onset of the Humanae Vitae crisis. And its first statement on morals, Life in Christ, in 1994, was published in the shadow of and totally eclipsed by John Paul's issuing of Veritatis Splendor in 1993, as Oliver has explained an encyclical of enormous stature, complexity, and controversy. Veritatis Splendor reasserted Roman Catholic teaching on the existence of moral absolutes, norms that admit of no exception, and of the existence of intrinsically evil acts regarded as disordered in their very nature 
and therefore bad in themselves, irrespective of wider circumstances or ensuing consequences. Life in Christ set out the Anglican position as one that is more inclined to accommodate pastorally relevant context into the consideration of moral acts. If the Roman Catholic Church said no, never, Anglicans were more inclined to say, well, hardly ever. The irony, of course, is that many Roman Catholic moral theologians and a large portion of the Catholic faithful would adopt an approach to moral decision-making more akin to that within Anglicanism. One might say, at an unofficial level, there's a far greater degree of ecumenical convergence on moral issues between Anglicans and Roman Catholics than can be captured through an official agreed statement such as life in Christ. You know this. We all know this. What do we do with this fact? Bury it? Politely pretend otherwise? It certainly adds a wrinkle to our neat and tidy positions as we sit at the table to thrash out our differences and identify common ground. One could simply discount this convergence as irrelevant. After all, what matters is formal agreements and what the official channels will sign up to. Archic is about Canterbury and Rome. Some might prefer to characterise the Roman Catholics that agree with Anglicans as being in error. Slightly awkward, perhaps, to then sit down at the Archic table with said Anglicans, but a necessary step, they might say, in the process of honest dialogue. Let's not do a numbers game, eight out of ten Christians prefer X, Y or Z. Yet, if much of the Christian world is in agreement on what Catholic moral living entails, on what Christian moral living entails, then that should at least give us pause for thought. Notice I've not said most of the Christian world, nor have I specified whether those who share this approach are dispersed throughout the world or confined to a certain region or regions. Could this, for instance, be a convergence in terms of a Western approach to moral living, masquerading as a Christian one? Nor have I specified whether this consensus is a long-standing or a relatively recent one. Christian tradition rightly takes a long view of history. Yet the last 50 years have given rise to enormous change in social norms, which makes the task of reading the signs of the times in the light of the gospel all the more urgent and challenging. These things are not irrelevant. The informal convergence on moral matters across communions raises interesting questions in relation to the concept of the census fide fidelium, the Roman Catholic International Theological Commission document, Census Fide in the Life of the Church, issued in 2014, reminds us that each of the baptized has the capacity to discern the truth in matters of faith. And it's clear that this applies within the ecumenical context. It states, should separated Christians be understood as participating and contributing to the census fidelium in some manner? The answer here is undoubtedly in the affirmative. And quoting Lumen Gentium, the Vatican Council text, it states, the Catholic Church acknowledges that many elements of sanctification and truth are to be found outside her own visible bounds. 
that certain features of the Christian mystery have at times been more effectively emphasised in other communities, thereby quoting Ut Unum Sint by John Paul in 1995. And it goes on to say that ecumenical dialogue helps her to deepen and clarify her own understanding of the gospel. That's paragraph 86. I believe one of the best hopes for ecumenism is for our respective communions to take seriously the task of being truly representative of their members. I realise this presents challenges. Roman Catholicism finds this particularly difficult. Clericalism excludes lay people from full participation in the church's governance. Rome is still prevailingly Western-focused and Eurocentric, despite a growing majority of Catholics living in the global south. African cardinals complained about Eurocentrism at the Synod of Bishops' meetings on the family, for example, talking about how divorce and remarriage, and that question was more prominent than discussion of poverty. And on youth, the African cardinals mentioned that the focus on unemployment could perhaps be not as relevant in the African context where issues of environmental destruction, child labour and migration were to the fore. The selection of yes-men on Catholic Church committees is a common complaint. The family synod meetings had only a few lay participants largely limited to observer status and despite 50 years of warm words about the participation of women in the life of the church, Catholic clerics continue to ignore the church's teaching. Vatican II called for the full participation of the faithful in the life of the church. It's a scandal that the many gifts given to the church are wasted in this way. There are small and gradual improvements. Catholics from the global south are participating as lay and ordained theologians and as members of the church's hierarchy. More than ever, lay people, many of them women, are running parts of the church and working as theologians. Pope Francis has introduced a more devolved and representative governance approach. His emphasis on curial reform and collegiality is allowing a wider range of voices to be heard in Rome. A synod where bishops are encouraged to speak out is very different from one that closes down topics or imposes pre-prepared answers. The pool of largely Italian and European cardinals is widening. Prior to the first synod meeting of the family in 2014, Francis insisted on a consultation of views in the pews through the use of a questionnaire addressed to Catholics worldwide rather than just to the world's bishops. Because this was the first time such a task had been undertaken, the process was somewhat ramshackle, but it did allow the bishops to speak with additional authority of their local context and highlighted the extent of the crisis in family life for those who might otherwise have been in denial. Francis has also encouraged the local church to find its own local solutions according to its own needs and contexts. His papal statements have where possible focused on concrete realities and personal experience and he's tried to avoid recourse to hard to comprehend theological abstractions and finger wagging. These are small gains, I realise, but they're a start. Rome wasn't built in a day. Wider representation will slowly shift the status quo, which gives the Roman Catholic Church the best chance of fully embodying its capacious tradition and expressing this in its teaching and practice, including on ecumenism. 
after the publication of Pope Francis's Amoris Laetitia on love in the family, during an in-flight press conference, he was asked whether the divorce and remarried should be able to receive the Eucharist. He expressed his irritation, stating, don't they realize that this is not the important issue? Don't they realize that the family all over the world is in crisis and the family is the basis of society? Don't they realize that young people don't want to get married? that the declining birth rate in Europe is enough to make us weep? Don't they realise that the shortage of jobs and employment opportunities is forcing fathers and mothers to take two jobs and children to grow up by themselves and not learn how to talk with their mothers and fathers? These are the big issues. Similarly, in 2015, when asked about the use of condoms in HIV prevention, he refused to give a direct answer. Instead, he said, the moral of the church on this point is found here faced with a perplexity. The fifth or sixth commandment on life, or that sexual relations are open to life. But this isn't the problem. The problem is bigger. The question makes me think of one they once asked Jesus. Tell me, teacher, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it obligatory to heal? Malnutrition, the development of the person, slave labour, the lack of drinking water, these are the problems. Obviously, issues such as the admission to the sacraments for the divorce remarried and the prophylactic use of condoms are hugely contentious issues within the Roman Catholic Church and urgent pastoral challenges that cry out for a church response. However, like all moral issues, they need to be viewed not only through a microscope, but also through a wide-angle lens in order to be seen in the context of the whole moral landscape where ethical priorities emerge within the overall contours of justice. In moral terms, churches and their theologians contend to overuse their microscopes and neglect their binoculars. This can have a distorting effect on reality and on the scale of priorities, magnifying their importance in ecumenical dialogues too. When focusing on the big issues, Anglicans and Roman Catholics offer powerful witness on the world stage for what is just and what is right. One would hope that Archic Three is able to give voice to this. Thank you.